one of the things that being in a family has taught me is uh, all of my flaws. I think one of the things that happens when you get close to people is you get close enough for them to see all of the good and the bad parts of you. And one of the things that's true about me that's a strength is that I can be dogmatic. I can be focused. I can push through obstacles to get what I want. But that can also be a flaw. Because what happens sometimes is I get something in my head that I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it no matter what. No matter who gets hurt, no matter who gets annoyed, no matter what falls apart, I am going to do it. And this happened, I think I'd been married for all of five days. And uh, we were on our honeymoon, and uh, we had a friend of ours who couldn't make our wedding. He was going to play a role in the wedding, and he felt bad that he couldn't even be there. And so he came up to me, and he gave me an envelope and said, hey, here's some, here's some cash. Take your wife out for a dinner that you'd never be able to afford on your own. I was like, okay. Um, And so we went on our honeymoon to San Diego, and there's a beautiful restaurant in La Jolla right on the water called the Marine Room. It's a beautiful restaurant, super expensive. I think it was $200 out the door for two of us. I mean, it was a very expensive dinner, but it was his money, not mine, so that's fine. (laughs) So we're getting ready to go to to the dinner, and I'm putting my clothes on, and I realize I don't have any socks. I don't know how to dress socks. And I know like now today, like it's high fashion for men not to wear socks with their suits, but this guy can pull it off, but I can't. And, and so I knew that. And so I knew that I couldn't go in this fancy restaurant with no socks. And so I just imagined, well, somewhere along the way on our drive over the next 20 minutes, we're going to pass some store that has socks. And so my wife is driving and I'm keep, we pull over and try and stop in places and nobody has any socks. And finally we're in La Jolla, which I'd never been to before. And we're driving around like in circles. And all of a sudden I see a store that I know has socks. And I'm like, stop! And she stops, like slams to a halt, and she goes, I gotta park. I said, no, and I hop out of the car. I run across traffic, and she rolls the window down. She goes, where should I park? I go, I don't know, I'm getting socks. And so I'm running inside, and um, I think it was dessert when she finally was happy with me again, you know, that I abandoned her in the middle of this road. But I just was dogmatic. I had this agenda, like I was gonna get my socks. And, and that was simple and funny and, and maybe cute, but, but later on in our marriage, it became much less cute. Because time and time again, I would knuckle down and go, no, this is going to happen. Or no, we're going to do this. And I would have an agenda. And an agenda is a, a good thing when you're like planning a meeting. Or maybe you're going to try to accomplish something. You know, the meaning of the word agenda is a plan of things to be done or matters to be acted upon. That, that sounds pretty innocuous. So if you're going to gather some people together, there should be an agenda. If you're going to work as a part of some cause, there should be an agenda. But many of us, when we use the word agenda, we don't mean this. We mean something much more nefarious, much more destructive. When there's somebody that you're close to and somebody tells you, oh, be careful, he has an agenda. Or you're in a family and they say, hey, watch out for her because she has an agenda. What you often mean is a, a selfish or hidden agenda. And selfish and hidden agendas, they destroy families. They destroy relationships. They can even destroy churches. And today, as we continue our series called Flawed Families, we're going to talk about the power of an agenda and what an agenda can do. 
If you've been up with us for the series, this is week three of our series, Flawed Families. And the main idea of this series is this, that every one of our families is flawed, and it's only through those flaws that we receive God's grace. And so our posture in this series has been that we're not going to avoid our flaws, we're not going to deny our flaws, we're not going to run from our flaws, we're going to allow God to expose our flaws so that he can heal them. And we're reminding each other that the things that live in the dark don't grow healthy in the dark. Only when those things come into the light do they become healthy, do they become transformed. And last week we talked about the fact that many times we start out with a sense of promise and hope about what God's going to do, but we end up in this, this season called the process where many of us give up, many of us turn to our own ways, many of us compromise. Um, this message struck a nerve because it's the most watched message in the last seven months of our church. So something tripped last week with you guys that God spoke through this. And so today I've entitled this message, No Agendas Allowed. That's the title of where we're going today. And if you got a copy of the handout when you walked in, it's a place to write down our big idea this morning. And it's this, that when you mix agendas and flaws, you end up with broken relationships and wounded people. If you're looking for a recipe for disaster in a relationship or a family, when you mix agendas and flaws together, what that recipe produces is not cake. It's broken relationships and wounded people. And we're going to see that in the Bible this morning. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd encourage you to open up to Genesis chapter 27. Now, before you wonder, we are not reading all 46 verses today. But I'm going to share with you the story. And we were putting this series together. This was one of the texts that I knew we needed to end up in. Because it describes a reality that many of us know from our lives and from our families. Regardless of what family looks like for you or family you come out of. And the first thing I want to talk to you about today are these four warnings I have for you about agendas. And the first warning about agendas is this, that agendas manipulate flaws for short-term personal gain. The reason why when you mix an agenda and a flaw, you get a wounded person in a broken relationship is what agendas do is they manipulate flaws for short-term personal gain. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to stand up as we read this first portion of the text together. Susanna, if you want to just lead him through the text, I'm going to read it from my Bible. In Genesis 27, verse 1, it says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that they could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And Isaac said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, and that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah, who's married to Isaac and who's Esau's mom, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it in, it's hunting season in Prescott, that's why I picked this text for you today. Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord I, before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats that I may prepare them for delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your mother to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob says to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall, I shall be seen to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. 
And his mother said to him, Jacob, let your curse be on me, my, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. And in the places where there are flaws that are fracturing people and relationships, God, we pray that you would do a great work of healing and restoration. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now, if you don't know this story of this family, last week we talked about this guy named Abram, who later on is renamed Abraham, who becomes the father of all nations. Well, Abraham and his wife Sarah have a son, Isaac, and Isaac gets married to Rebecca, and Rebecca gets pregnant with twins. And those twins are born in the world in a very famous moment. Esau comes out first, and he in, in that world, because he was born first, would become the inheritor or the primary uh, Patriarch of the family following his father Isaac. But as Esau is coming out, they see his foot wrapped around with a hand. That's his brother Jacob's hand, which is why they called him Jacob, because Jacob means heel grabber. So Jacob comes out, and from the very beginning, there's this tension between these two brothers. Later on, uh, Jacob will attempt to steal the, the birthright of his brother because his brother was so hungry, and Esau gives it up to his brother just so he can have something to eat. And along the way, as the parents are thinking, hey, it's going to be Esau who's going to inherit all this, in Genesis 25, God speaks, and he says, the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God says, hey, the way this would normally work is that Esau would be the one to inherit, but I have decided to bless Jacob. Now, we're not told why Jacob gets blessed over Esau. It's one of the many things in the Bible that, that we don't get the full picture on, like many things in your life today that you don't have the full picture on. Why did God do that? Why did God not do that? We don't know. I could tell you that when God's ways are higher than our ways, and you might go, Scott, that's a cop-out. Well, guess what? I'm not God. And you're not either. And we don't know. But all we know is that God's decided and his parents knew that Jacob should be the one to inherit it. Except what happens is Isaac decides that he knows better than God. And he begins to manipulate the situation. And so Isaac decides, hey, it's going to be my agenda over God's agenda. And he calls in Esau and says, hey, I want, I want, I'm going to bless you. Bring me some food that I really like. And once I've eaten that, then I'll bless you. Esau steps in and he goes, well, you know, I made a promise to Jacob to give him my birthright, but I can break it. And so he goes, my dad wants some food. If I give him the food he likes, he'll give me the blessing that I want. That's a good arrangement for all of us. And all while this is going on, Rebecca is eavesdropping. And she decides that she and Jacob are going to carry out what God wants. But the way they decide to do it is not the way that God intended. And they decide the end, God's plan, justifies their means. Which is wife manipulating husband, wife manipulating son, wife and son lying to father and husband and brother and son. This is the reason why I told you that when it comes to the Bible, most of these families put the capital D in dysfunction. And they're all leveraging and manipulating each other's flaws for their own personal gain. Very short term personal gain. So said in the beginning, what happens when you're in a family is you are the resident expert on everyone in your family's flaws. You know their weaknesses, you know their proclivities, you know when to strike to get what you want. 
and we don't realize the ramifications of what happens. We think we're just doing something innocuous. Well, I know that I should ask them this at this time, because if I ask them this here, then I can get what I want. Or I know that if I get them in this state, then I can get what they want. And None of you have ever done this before, and I'm just speaking from personal experience here. But what happens is that we leverage and we manipulate people using these flaws. I want to give you a, an illustration of this. So it's, it's kind of like a pot. It's already a little bit cracked. All of you today are a little bit cracked. You're a crack pot, like me. Um, I know, really cheesy, but I just had to go with it. Um, and all of us have a flaw. And when you're in a family, whether it's your family of origin or the family you chose to enter into through marriage or the chosen family you're a part of with friends, you know all of the flaws of those people. And knowledge is a dangerous thing. Because you can use that knowledge for your own end. And so what happens is you just go, I'm just going to do a little bit. You know, I'm just going to do a little bit. I'm just going to do a little bit of, a little bit of manipulation. I'm just going to do a little bit, a little bit of leverage, a little bit. But over time, you just become comfortable with that pattern. And so many of us are in this pattern where we're constantly manipulating one another. This is the only instance we're told about in Isaac and Rebecca's marriage where they manipulate. But I can promise you, this wasn't the only moment. And over time, this became their pattern. And eventually it cracked. Like it always does. And this is why I said when you mix an agenda with flaws, what you end up are wounded people and broken relationships. And that's exactly what's about to happen in this story. Is they, if they thought it was innocuous, they thought it was no big deal. They thought they were just kind of carrying out God's plan or doing what they wanted, and it had disastrous consequences. Because week number two, the morning number two, is that agendas create perceived winners and actual losers. This is the other warning I have to tell you, is that, that you think that there's going to be a winner when there's an agenda, but there's only a perceived winner. There's actually just losers. I'm not sure who first said it. It certainly wasn't me, so don't attribute this to me. But many years ago, somebody said, if you win or I win, we lose. When you're in a relationship or you're in a family and one person wins and one person loses, you both lose. The relationship loses. And that's what happens in the story in Genesis 27, 18 to 46. What happens is that Jacob goes in there dressed in his brother's clothes, wearing animal skins so he would feel hairy, carrying this meal that his mother made for his father. And his father, he smells him, he touches him. He talks to him, he eats the food, he's convinced it's Esau, and so he blesses Jacob instead. And right as Jacob is slipping out of the room with his blessing, Esau comes home. And he prepares the food and he goes into his father, takes the food to his father. And he says, I have the food here, father. And he goes, what food? I'm already full. And the food I made for you, you brought me food a little while ago. I didn't bring you food. Jacob again. And as the family begins to learn that it was Rebecca and Jacob who manipulated the whole thing, Esau says, well, give me something, Father. Give me a blessing. And if you read the text, you discover that it isn't a blessing. The only thing left for, for Isaac to give Esau is a curse. He says, your people will always wander. Your descendants will never be satisfied. 
it's a, a game over moment. In fact, in Genesis 27, this is the last time we see this family together in all of scripture. 25 years later-ish, Jacob and uh, Esau reconcile. But the four of them in this family, this is the last time they're together. This is their last family picture. Many of you know what that's like. Your last memory with somebody you care about was not a good one. Your last family moment as a group wasn't a good one. And this is what happens with agendas, that, that Isaac and Rebecca's agendas destroyed this family. Yeah, the kids are responsible for their own actions, but what we see is that this agenda, this fracture was initiated by their parents. And it destroyed their families. And in a relationship, if you win or I win, we lose. And so many of us in the relationships we're in, in the friendships we're in, in the families we're in, we get in battles and we go, I'm going to win. Well, if you're in a relationship and you're in a struggle and you win and somebody else loses, to quote my mom from Texas, y'all lose. There's perceived winners, but there's just actually losers. And so you say, Scott, how do I know if I have an agenda? How do I know if an agenda has begun to invade this relationship? Well, I'm going to give you four cues right here. How to know if you have an agenda? Number one, if you're trying to win over them instead of winning them over. It's one thing to go, hey, I'm trying to convince you of my idea, and we're talking about ideas, and I'm trying to win you over to my perspective. That's one thing. But if your goal is to win over them so that you win and they lose that you get what they, you want and they don't get what they want, that's, that's an agenda. Number two, if you're considering using knowledge of someone else's weaknesses for your own good, if you're considering using insider knowledge, you know, if it would be illegal on Wall Street, it should be illegal at home. And many of us use knowledge of other people's weaknesses for our own good. That's an agenda. Number three, if you're not really listening to the other person. Say you're in a conversation and you're not really listening. Or if you are listening, you're preparing your response. Or you're listening for a a weakness in their argument. If you're not really listening to hear them. This is the one I, I fail in a lot. I am not a good listener. Happened two nights ago. My wife was like, are you really listening to me? And I repeated back what she said. And she said, you may have heard what I said, but you weren't really listening. And then number four, if the other person says you have an agenda, you have an agenda. You go, well, why do they get to say that? Because they're on the other side of you. And they feel what it feels like to be on the other side of you. And if they say you have an agenda where you're trying to win over them and you care about yourself more than them, then, then the win for you is going to be them losing. Third warning I want to give you about agendas is that agendas are the opposite of love. Agendas are the opposite of love. Now, love is a complicated topic. As you've heard before from probably other pastors, we got one word in English that has to carry a lot of water. 
And as I go into this next section of the message, I, I, I'm not, I kind of, kind of see the pieces of my, you know, illustration standing here. It kind of is a good reminder that I feel like a little bit in this section that I'm walking on eggshells. Because I know that so many of you not only come from flawed families, but you're wounded people. And some of the wounding that's happened in your life has happened in environments like this. And I'm about to wade into a text uh, that has some baggage. It's been used to justify abuse. It's been used to empower manipulation. And it's been poorly taught so that most of us just avoid it. So let's jump into it. (laughs) (laughs) Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your husbands, ask to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should also love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now I said in this series, this is not a marriage series. And I recognize that not everybody in this room is married. But if you want to contrast a picture of an unhealthy relationship in Genesis 27 with a healthy relationship, Ephesians 5 is that other side. It's this picture of a healthy, non-manipulative, non-agenda-driven marriage. And yet, this passage is the source of so much pain. I heard the rumblings even as I turned to the passage and you saw what it was. Because for so many years, the, the, the passage about wives submitting to their husbands empowered men to domineer and emotionally, physically, or in other ways, abuse their wives. And it introduced this idea that the main responsibility was for the wife to submit to the husband, and the rest of the passage wasn't even considered. And the bigger, the bigger even problem is the whole passage in general is ignored. We don't read the whole text in context. And if you're new to the Bible you'll find that many times you can use Bible verses to mean whatever you want if you rip them out of context. So the context of this is chapter 5 in Ephesians. The very first verse, if you have your physical Bible open, you'll see is this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is Paul's refrain again and again. Hey guys, your calling is to imitate God, to imitate Christ, to be like Christ. And then right before he calls wives to to their husbands, this is what he says. And all of you should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Huh. So it isn't just one way. Huh. It isn't just a woman thing that she has to submit. We're called to all submit. Hmm. That kind of changes things. The meaning of the word submit is to make oneself subject to another. Now, I know this doesn't sound American that you should submit. But if you won't submit, you'll never be able to imitate God. And I tell you this again and again, American values are often at odds with biblical values. And the scripture is clear that in a marriage relationship, the wife is to submit to the husband. 
but it's not done. It also calls the husband to love the wife in sacrificial, unconditional love. The word that's used here for love is the same word that's used to describe Jesus Christ on the cross. So I don't know about you, but if I'm in a relationship with my wife or anybody else, and that person is literally laying down their life for me, that invites me to submit. And if somebody is trusting me enough to make themselves vulnerable and to subject themselves under me, I am now compelled to lay myself down for them. Let me put this another way. When we submit and sacrifice, there's no room left for self-seeking agendas. This is the reason the Bible paints this picture for us. That a healthy relationship is not defined by leveraging and manipulating flaws for selfish agendas. A healthy relationship is marked by submission and sacrifice. Because when one person is submitting and one person is sacrificing, it takes all of the air out of the room when it comes to a self-seeking agenda. And in this passage, before he gets to wives and husbands, Paul is very clearly talking about our relationships at church. Our relationships in the family of God. It's his same subject in the passage that has been so misinterpreted for 2,000 years. 1 Corinthians 13. It was not written as a marriage text. It was written as a church text. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Love does not insist on its own way. And so often what happens in families and in the family of God is that we all start insisting our own way. We start driving our own selfish agendas. Some of you, sadly, are in Cornerstone Church today because you used to be in a church where people insisted on their own way and those agendas fractured and broke that church into pieces. Some of you are here today and you are still feeling the loss and the impact of a marriage or family where somebody insisted on their own way with a selfish or hidden agenda and it fractured the relationship and it just left pieces. And so because we know that so well, although we don't want to do it, so many of us just carry out that same thing. And if you come back next week, I'll talk to you about how you overcome the struggles and the sins of your families before you because many of us are just playing out the script of our parents or the families we grew up in. And what happens right here in Genesis 27 with Isaac and Rebekah is going to play out again with Jacob and his kids. And that's why again and again throughout the scriptures, God is trying to speak to us and calling us to a different kind of love. A couple weeks ago, I stumbled on a quote and I just stashed it away because I knew I could use it later. Cal Jernigan, who's a pastor in the Phoenix area, defined love this way. He said, love is a preoccupation with the well-being of someone else. Love is not primarily a feeling. Love is not primarily an emotion, although it does involve feelings and emotions. Love is the preoccupation with the well-being of someone else. And what brings healing and transformation is when God gets a hold of someone's heart and they say, you know what? I may have been abused. I may have been hurt. Somebody else may have been driving their agenda into my life. But today I'm going to choose to serve. 
I'm going to choose to sacrifice. I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to preoccupy myself with their well-being, not preoccupy myself with my agenda. Because this is what Jesus did. He wasn't preoccupied with himself. He laid his life down for us. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And all of you are here today because God was preoccupied with your well-being more than his. And your relationships will change when you become preoccupied with someone else's the same way he was with yours. Warning number four. God invites us to a funeral for our agendas. I have to tell you, I get lots of invitations. I'll get invitations to birthday parties. Was it two this weekend with my kids? I'll get invitations to graduations, to weddings. I've never got an invitation in the mail to a funeral. And most of us, when we get invited to a funeral, we're like, oh, I'm not sure I want to go. But so often we do because we love and care for that person. And Jesus, when he was here on earth, he gave his disciples an invitation to a funeral. In Mark 8, 34, it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You want to follow me? You want to be like me? All you got to do is die to yourself. And again, context matters. In this passage, right before it, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is where Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter didn't want to go to his own funeral. Peter didn't want to die to himself. And he knew if my rabbi is going to die, guess what? I'm going to have to die too. And that's why going on, Dietrich Bonhoeffer summarizes this passage so well. He says when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. You want to be like Jesus? Then you're going to have to do what Jesus did. You're going to have to have a funeral for your agenda. Not a popular message today. Doubt this one would get on the bestseller list with the New York Times. But, but if you're tired of living with the consequences and in the pattern of your flawed family... That will not change when you keep playing their game the same way. You're frustrated with your relationship with your mom and your dad or the family you came out of. You can't keep doing what they did and expect different results. You've got to change the game. And this week I was reading a book that had nothing to do with this. And I just felt like God just slapped me across the face. And I wrote this question in the margins. And I said, if I'm going to suffer with this question, then my church is too. (laughs) That's how much I love you. (laughs) This was the question God hit me with. What needs to die in me for God's agenda to advance in this relationship? 
See, the agenda that should be driving our relationships is not yours or mine, it's God's. And many times, we are the encumbrance. We are the stumbling block. We are the thing that is getting in the way. And so I, I don't hope you just learn, hey, the people in the Bible were messed up. If, if that's all you walk away from with this series, we failed. I hope you come to a point where God invites you to a funeral for your agenda. And you can point back to that moment and that, that time right there, that, that day in September of 2019. Yeah, we were dealing with the consequences of our broken, flawed family or our broken, flawed past. But that was the day where that thing died. That was the thing where that thing was buried. That was the thing where God changed that thing in me. Because until that thing, that selfish agenda in your heart dies, God's agenda won't be able to advance. And if you want to follow Jesus, if you're here because you want to become more like Jesus, there is something in you that's going to have to die. You're going to have to deny yourself. If he had a cross, you're going to have a cross. The other option is to continue to break pottery everywhere. And we serve a God who out of death picks up the pieces and makes things whole. We serve a God who out of someone laying down their life for someone else changes everything. And you may have a moment where something dies in you today. And that's the moment where resurrection power can enter the game. That's the moment where God can begin to change things. On the back of your hand, there's some next steps that I want to draw your attention to this morning. And the first one is this. I want you to confess the places where your agendas have hurt the relationships you have with others. In a little bit, we're going to sing a song, and you could come down front right here and pray. If you know a hurt right now, when I pray a second, you walk out the door, pull your phone out, make a phone call. Maybe the person's here in this room right now. And you grab them, you come down forward, and you have a conversation. You go, Scott, that sounds really uncomfortable. Well, what do you want? Do you want to be comfortable? Or do you want to be whole? Do you want to be comfortable? Or do you want to be healed? Confess that. Number two. Surrender to God's agenda. In Romans 12, it tells us that, that we are called to make our bodies living sacrifices to God. Here's the problem with the living sacrifice. You can get up off the altar. You go, I'll surrender. Oh, I'll take it back. Oh, I surrender. I'll take it back. God, I want your agenda, but I'm not that much. I want your agenda, but not to go there. Surrender. Lay it down. Number three, put the well-being of others above yourself. Begin this week when you look at your calendar or you look at your schedule or you look at your call log or you look at what you're going to do. Go, how can I put their well-being above mine and make this really, really practical? And then number four, release the outcome to God. I try to always tell you the truth, even when you don't want to hear it. I can't promise you that if you shift from agenda driving 
to well-being of others lifting, that the other person in the relationship is going to go a more healthy track. If you're in a marriage right now that's being broken to pieces by agendas, I can't promise you that if you shift your posture, God's going to save your marriage. I can't promise you that if you're in a dysfunctional family and you decide to surrender your family to God and begin to do your best to honor him with how you treat them, I can't promise you that your family is going to turn into some model family. Because God doesn't promise us those things. He just says, trust me. Surrender. Release the outcome. And if you are still trying to manipulate the outcome, you are still driving your agenda. Part of the way you'll know that you've surrendered your agenda is you've released the outcome. And the good news is that when you mix sacrificial love and flaws, God is able to heal broken relationships and wounded people. It doesn't say that God always does. It says he's able when his kind of love enters a relationship. And that's my prayer for you, starting right now. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.